but sometimes the hardest thing to do, right, is to trust and obey. And I know that we work on that with our children. Just trust me and just do what I said to do, right? Just we know what we're doing. Just just do it. Just obey. And then we find ourselves as God's children finding it hard to just trust him and to obey uh, like we should. But we uh, sing that together like we meant it and praise the Lord for that. Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21. Again, as we have been working our way through this series on prophecy, uh, there are so many rabbit trails that we could take and so many uh, questions that probably come up. Uh, I know that there are some things as we uh, come to uh, the end of this series, there are some individual, maybe standalone messages that I uh, may, may bring to, to try to tie up some loose ends or to deal with some of those uh, rabbit trail types of things. But Revelation 21 and 22 are two of some of the most glorious chapters in all of the Bible. And I know that we, we have various passages that God uses in our lives. God gives us maybe certain verses at certain times in our lives that uh, God uses in, in a, a, a rima, in a specific way uh, with his word uh, to challenge us, to encourage us, to strengthen us. And yet Revelation 21 and 22 uh, are so rich in the, the hope of glory and speak of a, a, a land and a place that we long for, that uh, most, if not all of us, have loved ones who have gone before us, and we know that they are in the presence of the Lord, uh, those who knew Christ as their Savior, and yet this is a land that God has uh, been preparing for us, that Jesus Christ has gone ahead, and he is preparing a place for us, and he will come again and receive us unto himself, that where he is, there we will be also. So we're going to take some time tonight, and we're going to look again at the end of the world. I'll do a quick review, and there is much talk. We see it all the time. It's in the news. It's in various places of our culture. People want to know, how is it all going to come to an end? Where are we all going? And this is a question, one of life's ultimate questions. Why are we here where are we going? What is going to happen to us when we die? This has been a, an age-old question since the beginning of time, since the earliest days after Adam and Eve, of course, were cast out of the garden due to their sin, and man uh, began uh, to uh, live in the consequences of his sin. And, of course, and of course God uh, prepared and planned a redemption uh, for all those who will receive him as their savior. And of course, the flood came and then the Tower of Babel. And man, once again, trying to figure out religion, trying to figure out the meaning of life, trying to understand why we are here, disobeying God's command to go to spread throughout the world, to replenish the earth, and then they begin to build that tower. And God, of course, confuses their languages and... Now we are seeing a new kind of Tower of Babel. And I'm not trying to be a conspiracy person. I'm not trying to be a person who is into one of these mysteries. 
But there is a new kind of Tower of Babel, the Babylonian spirit, the spirit of Antichrist is in the world today, and there's a new kind of Tower of Babel almost in the sense of the technology and the way man is trying to bring a one-world government and a one-world religion. And we've spent some time talking about this, and we can see the way in which technology is having an effect and is able to, in a sense, bring the world together the World Economic Forum, where we have multi-millionaire, intellectual, elitist people getting together and saying we should eat bugs and we should quit driving our cars and we should economically have a reset and all that applies to all of us peons, but they'll continue to fly their private jets and continue to live on their smorgasbords and their buffets, and they'll be the ones to tell us how to live so that we don't cause the end of the world. You know how it is with all this climate talk. And there's people who think that we are just going to simply disappear. We're going to be dirt food or fish food or worm food, and we're going to be pushing up daisies. And that's the way it's all going to end. And so eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And then there's false religions that teach a form of reincarnation. And you can come back as a cow. You can come back as a mosquito. You can come back as whatever. And then you've got this modern technology now where people are freezing dead bodies in hopes that there will be technology one day to resurrect those people and let them have a new life. And then we've got artificial intelligence. I don't know if any of you have been following any of this stuff with the artificial intelligence and this chat GPT and some of the things that are going on with that and the idea that we can basically clone a human being with technology and not only have a cloned human life in a literal human form, but also basically replace human intellect with artificial intelligence. But isn't it interesting, as I've been learning more about this artificial intelligence, it's fascinating that the sins of mankind are being programmed into the artificial intelligence. So some people who are trying to beat the system, so to speak, they had a, had a guy get on the system, and he began to ask the system questions, the, the artificial intelligence, the chat, GBT, GPT or whatever, and he kept asking question after question after question, and he began to get into moral questions and right and wrong questions, and he asked if he should leave his wife, and the artificial intelligence bot said yes. And then he began to ask more questions, and the artificial intelligence basically told him how he should leave his wife and how he, he would be better off, and he could have this and this and this. And it was just basically taking the sins of mankind, and man had programmed those sins into the robot, and it was spewing forth sin. And it was an artificial intelligence that had received garbage, garbage in, and now garbage was coming out. 
And there's all of this talk of progress. And we are going to experience a utopia one day because as these evolutionary cycles, as these technology as these t- technologies progress, we are one day going to reach the heavens. And we are going to have a utopia. And we're all going to get along and everything's going to be peace and prosperity. And it's a lie from the devil. God tells us how the world will end. And God tells us how to be redeemed. In Revelation 21 and 22 help us understand what God has planned, what God has prepared for his people, for those who receive Christ as their Savior. We've looked last week, we went into, actually the last couple of weeks, we went into the end of the millennial kingdom, the great white throne judgment. We spent some time dealing with, I know a heavy topic, hell, lake of fire, We spent some time looking at the fact that at the great white throne judgment, all of the unsaved will come before Christ. And there's people out there who talk about Jesus, no judging, just Jesus. I've mentioned before the church near where we used to live in Indianapolis, big letters on their signboard out in front of their church, no judging, just Jesus. And I so badly wanted to go up there and put a, I don't know, a poster over their sign that said, and we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, or the passage here in Revelation 20 of the great white throne judgment. Jesus is going to ultimately be the judge of all of us. And for the unsaved, they're judged according to their works, but they're unsaved. So This is literally dealing with degrees of hell in the level of punishments. Just as a believer who has been genuinely born again, saved, we're not judged at the judgment seat of Christ for our sin, but we're judged according to our works. So therefore, our understanding, our level of joy and pleasure in heaven, and we'll talk a little bit about that, has to do with our life that we're living right now and laying up treasures in heaven and our judgment according to our works affects our joy and our pleasure and our praise and our worship in heaven as well as the responsibilities that God gives us in his millennial kingdom as well as his heavenly kingdom. But we'll talk a little bit about that as we come along, as we go along here. We talked about in hell, the lake of fire specifically, There is torment, there is fire, and there is separation from the personal presence of God. And I remember meeting a guy many years ago, and he was saying, oh, I believe in the Sermon on the Mount. That's how I live my life. And I think that if I just do a good enough job, if I can keep as much of the Sermon on the Mount that I possibly can from Matthew 5 through 7, then I will get to heaven and then I will be able to to make it. And I said, well, what about hell? Do you believe there's a hell? And he said, no. He said, I believe that hell is what we experience here on earth if we make bad decisions. And then after we die, we just cease to exist, and 
that's the end. That was what this man tried to tell me as I was trying to share the gospel with him and try to point uh, him to Christ. And he denied an eternal hell. And he denied torment. He denied the eternal fire. And he denied separation from the presence of God. Some people, they believe that if we make bad decisions here on this earth, that is the only hell we will experience. And totally misconstruing what God's word says. And obviously, thinking those kinds of, thinking those things, totally missing out on eternal life. Totally missing out on God's redemption plan. Totally missing out on life in Christ, eternal life, and a personal relationship with Jesus Christ now in a home in heaven in eternity and sins forgiven. And instead, thinking that if there even is a hell, which in this case this man denied, some people think that hell is just an eternal party where they go and they dance with their friends and guzzle beer and whatever else. They think it's just one big long party. And that's not at all what the scriptures reveal. So we see, we have talked about what hell is, what the scriptures declare. And again, this is another testimony to the inspiration of the Bible. Because what man would have invented hell and said, everybody goes there unless you trust Jesus Christ as your Savior? What man would have ever invented that story? What person would have ever come up with, oh yeah, everybody goes to hell, a place of eternal torment, except if you trust in this one man, Jesus Christ, and only him, and only by faith in him. If man invented that story, then man would have never put all of humanity in hell, except by one way, through one man, Jesus Christ. No man could have invented Jesus, for one thing. No man would have had a book that sent everybody to hell unless they trusted one man, Jesus Christ. This is another testimony to the inspiration and the authority of God's word. That there is a real place called hell that Jesus talked about more than he even talked about heaven. But then let's shift gears and let's talk about, as we finish up in this particular area, let's talk about, once again, the real climate change. Second Peter Chapter number three, we closed with this. I had you go to Revelation uh, 21, uh, but we can go back once again to 2 Peter chapter number three, and we see the real climate change that God will bring. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat, the earth also, and the works that are therein shall be burned up, seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved. What manner of persons ought ye to be? in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hasting unto the coming day of, the, of God, wherein the heavens, being on fire, shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heats. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. Again, I am not concerned about signing the Paris, whatever it's called, the Paris Treaty. George Bush got all kinds of criticism for not signing the Kyoto Treaty years ago. 
And we somehow think that we're going to stop all the earthquakes and all the hurricanes and all the tornadoes and all the cyclones and all the floods. We honestly think that we as mankind can stop all that. No way. Do we think that we can offer enough sacrifices to Mother Earth? As these climate change people talk about, we can offer enough sacrifices to Mother Earth to cause her to be nice to us. We know it's about power and money and control. It's about worshiping the creation instead of the creator. And they use judgment language. We commit climate sins by driving our cars. We are going to go to a place of judgment when the global warming causes all the ice caps to melt and all the shorelines to disappear and we all melt away in global warming. Well, what were they saying about global warming when it was negative 40 with winds of 50 miles an hour? What did they say then? There are more people, I believe, that are, are from the statistics, there are more people who die of cold weather than die of heat. Uh, anyway, it, it's just so much of it is about manipulating, controlling, power, money. When God tells us how the world will come to an end, there will be a new heavens and a new earth. Because in verse number 12 of 2 Peter uh, chapter 3, The heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. That is God's doing. I don't know exactly what that's going to look like. But there will be a restoration. Paradise lost, paradise regained. There will be a consummation. There will be a new heavens and a new earth. We, as as human beings, we did not having obviously post the Garden of Eden, we have not experienced ever a perfect earth. Adam and Eve did for a short period of time. That will be restored. There will be a restoration. There will be a consummation. There will be a renewal of the earth and the heavens, and sin will no longer have an effect. The creation will no longer groan there will be the replacement of this sin-cursed earth and all of the effects of sin upon this universe, the effects of sin in our personal lives and our physical bodies, of course, when we are resurrected and we received our glorified body, the presence of sin is gone, and in heaven we will no longer have any of those effects of sin. And we will enter into a heavenly kingdom, a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem. So what do these look like? God has given us just a little bit. Just enough to, in a sense, whet our appetites to help us to know enough. Just like as little kids sometimes, our parents told us, here's enough information This is all you need to know right now. I'll tell you more later. I've done this with my own children many a time. This is what you need to know now. You'll get to know more later when you're ready for it. In a sense, God gave us just enough by his divine wisdom. He gave us just enough. He let us know just enough about heaven. That 
obviously, as saved people, we long for, we look forward to, but it piques our curiosity. There's people who want to know, what is heaven going to be like? Is it going to be that 100-acre farm that I always wanted with 10-point bucks just walking and I can just take them all out? Is it going to be that giant lake in the sky where I can catch 12 pound bass just every single time I throw my hook in? Is, is, is heaven going uh, to just be a, a, a chocolate factory where I can just go and I can just get whatever chocolate covered chocolate, our favorite food? Is it just going to be the smorgasbord in the sky? That's what we think of, right? We take what we think of as the greatest pleasures here on earth and we say, well, that's what heaven's going to be like. And and we're going to have our wings and we're going to have our white robes and we're going to have our harps and we're going to be playing. And Sam and I can do a duet. Because neither one of us are very musically inclined. But he was playing his just like I was playing mine. So is that what heaven is? Is heaven... Just all of the things that we enjoy here on earth, but magnified in heaven? Is it just a great big shopping mall in the sky with unlimited credit cards and unlimited, unlimited money to buy whatever we want? What does God say about heaven? Revelation 21 in verse 1, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. What does Scripture identify? Who does Scripture identify as the bride of Christ? The church. The church will finally be, in all of her glory, sinless and perfect. And we, as believers as blood-washed sinners, as believers clothed in the righteousness of Christ, having been baptized by the Holy Spirit, placed in Christ, justified the righteousness of Christ, credited to our account, we can now enter into the glories of an eternal heaven, of God's eternal heaven, and there will be no sin, and we will be the bride in perfection, adorned for her husband, dwelling in that new Jerusalem, that city. Now, I'm a city kid. I love Lafayette. I've grown to love Lafayette in the last couple years. I know that I'm still a city kid from my growing up days, but I really like Lafayette. And again, I give Lafayette a lot more credit for filling potholes than Indianapolis, than Mayor Hogsett ever did. But anyway... I'm a city kid, and I, 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 I grew up in Indianapolis, not Chicago. I can't drive the streets of Chicago like, like Derek can, um, or some of you who may have grown up in other big cities. I've been on the, the highways of Atlanta, and it's 12 lanes, and it's rush hour, and it is just every, every man or woman for himself or herself. It's, it's crazy. We think of a city... We think of lots and lots and lots of people, traffic, road construction, right? What, what, what is the, the sign uh, of being in Chicago? The orange barrel, right? 
I mean, you pay the toll and then you have to dodge the barrels. 465 is under perpetual construction. I-65 is under perpetual construction. That's gone. It's gone. A, A city full of people. And we are sinless and perfect. And we dwell together in unity and harmony. No more headlines with the crimes and how many people were shot and all the violence a new Jerusalem, in perfection, the bride adorned for her husband. And who was the husband? Who was the groom? Jesus Christ. Now, as married individuals, we understand the wedding day and all that goes into it. As soon as that engagement ring is placed on the girl's finger, what's the first thing that she is looking for? The, the dress. And she'll even take her friends, and she'll take her mom, and it is a big deal. And they're going from store to store and checking all the different places, and it's got to be just right. It can't just be any dress. It can't just be any goodwill that you hope you can get a good deal on. No, it is bridal stores, it is specific places, and it's got to look just right, and it's got to meet the approval of all the right people. And we will be adorned as God's bride, as Christ's bride. We will be adorned in the righteousness of Christ, in perfection, dwelling in that city with a newness that is beyond our ability to even describe. That is a wedding day that is far greater than any wedding that the United Kingdom can put on for their prince and princesses and all of the stuff that goes on. And we know how pathetic some of that news can be. There is going to be a wedding day with the new Jerusalem as we enter into the heavenly kingdom. And there will be, as we read here, a city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. In verse number three, and I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them and they shall be his people and God himself shall be with them and be their God. So what do we see in heaven? The personal presence of God. The personal presence of God. We just read that in verse 3. Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. Had there been a tabernacle? Let's go back to the Garden of Eden. God walked with Adam and Eve. And then as, obviously, there was sin, and then, of course, we know the story of Israel, and what did God give instructions regarding as Israel came out of Egypt and was in the wilderness preparing to go to the promised land. He gave them instructions about the tabernacle. What did David and then Solomon, and Solomon built the temple. The temple has been in the center of worship, the central theme and focus for all of these different generations. Is not the temple a big deal in Israel right now? Is it not something that Israel is looking to? And we've talked about the rapture and the tribulation and the temple and the millennial temple. 
The centrality of worship. We've seen it all throughout Scripture. We have seen Emmanuel, God with us, the Holy Spirit indwelling us. Okay? Now we see God himself as the temple. Never before has this ever happened. Because there's always been the breach of sin. But now, sin is completely vanquished. It is completely done away with. And the temple is God himself tabernacling with men, dwelling with men. That's an incredible thought. It's overwhelming. It goes beyond our ability to fully comprehend. We continue with not just the personal presence of God, and we could go to John 14. There's so many passages I wish we had time to go to. But we know John 14 where uh, Jesus said, uh, I go to prepare a place for you and will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. Uh, there's other passages, again, that we don't have time to go to, but we, we, we already touched on not just the personal presence of God, but the perfect state of sinlessness. Revelation 21, go down to verse 4. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Sin is gone. Death is gone. No more sorrow. No more crying. No more pain. The former things are passed away. We also see uh, down in verse number 27 of Revelation 21, and there shall in no wise enter into, any, enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. We continue and we see also down in Revelation 22 and verse 3, and there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and His servants shall serve Him. And then we go to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, and we see there in verse number 2. 1 John 3 and verse number 2. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. It doesn't mean that we become gods. It doesn't mean that we finally have reached that place of divinity. No, it just means that we will be in perfection. We, will, we, we have been saved from the penalty of sin when we trusted Christ as our Savior. We are saved from the power of sin at salvation, but there's also a progressive aspect of being saved from the power of sin. We call that personal sanctification. But in heaven, we will literally be saved. We call it glorification. We are saved from the very presence of sin. It's gone. Now, I don't know about you, but I get sick of this flesh. I get tired of the times when I don't respond the right way to my wife or to my children. I get tired of 
the wrong thoughts. I get tired of the lust of the flesh and lust of the eyes and the pride of life constantly tempting and pulling. I get tired of saying the wrong things, not reacting the way I should or not having the right attitude. I get tired of all of the sins of the flesh and of the Spirit. What a glorious day that will be when all of that is gone. I know that we look forward to having no more aches and pains. I'll be glad when I don't have a bad allergy day, when my right knee doesn't hurt, when I don't have psoriasis or have to take medicine for it, when my eyes, I don't need contacts, and we can go on and on. When cancer is gone, when all of the diseases and the afflictions, all of that is gone, I know we look forward to that, but the presence of God, our Savior, the presence of Christ in perfection, with no sin inhibiting, and being able to have perfect fellowship with one another without sin, without the curse of sin, that is a day that we look forward to. And if we don't look forward to that, then something is wrong with us. Something is wrong. If we long for this earth, and we want more of what this earth has to offer, then there is something wrong with our spiritual life and our affections. We could go to Romans 7 and verse 24, Philippians 3 and verse number 12. We don't have time to go to all of these passages. But not only will there be the, perfect, the personal presence of God, the perfect state of sinlessness, but also perfect knowledge. Now this one is a little bit harder to explain because honestly it's difficult for, for us to fully comprehend. But 1 Corinthians 13 in verse number 12. And again, there, you don't see lots and lots of passages uh, listed here, but the main one is 1 Corinthians 13 in verse number 12. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as also I am known. Okay, now I'm not saying, again, that we rise to divine knowledge. Not saying that. But Dana and I were having a conversation just uh, right before the service, and we were just, you know, just chatting a little bit about different things and passages, and he was talking about uh, teen Sunday school this morning and uh, some of the things uh, in the scriptures. And uh, one of the things that we, we talked about was the book of Jonah and how just kind of abruptly the book of Jonah ends. So what did, what did Jonah do after he complained about the gourd drying up? Did Jonah just go back to live in the way he did, not caring about souls? Did he continue to preach the gospel? What, what did Jonah do? Do we not have in our minds some of those questions? Um, what, what happened at such and such a time? Or what was David thinking at this point? Or, or, or what was it like for Paul what was it like for John the Baptist or going back into the Old Testament? And what was it like for Noah as he stood there and he watched all those animals coming in? And Noah, what was it like on the ark? We ask our, ourselves these questions all the time when we go to the, the ark encounter or the creation museum. And they've done some imaginary thinking and kept it within uh, biblical parameters. But do we not have some of those questions? Those are some of the things that we hope to be able to Ask. We would love to go to David, to Noah, to some of these Old Testament, New Testament saints and ask them questions. What was it like? What did you think here? Why did you do that? But it's more than just that. It's having relationships with one another 
uninhibited by sin. Wouldn't that, isn't that, and wouldn't that be, and won't, won't that be a glorious thing? To no longer have grudges, and that person said something that I didn't like 15 years ago, but I still have to hold it over their head because I just don't like them. Where we have unforgiveness, and we have this, that, and the other, or this person didn't take care of this, they offended me, I went to them, they still haven't taken care of it. All that goes away. There is relationships without sin. That's an incredible thought. We have not experienced that. We don't know what that's like, but I can't help but think that that's part of what Paul is mentioning and referring to here. And there is an understanding. We'll figure out who was right and who was wrong on all those doctrinal issues. I'm looking forward to that because I know how many I'm right on. I don't know about you. No, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. But all those theological debates, God will clear it up, won't he? All those personal preferences that we probably shouldn't have held so strongly or all those areas where it was very clear from the scripture and yet there's arguments about this, that, and that application and this interpretation. All that's taken care of. God will straighten us all out. And there will be a knowledge and an understanding without sin, without pride, without selfishness, and we will relate to one another in a way that we've never related before. Now, are we marrying and being given in marriage? No. Does that mean all of our memories and all of our relationships that we had on earth, there will be no recollection, no knowledge of those? I don't, I don't believe that that's the case at all. I believe that God will give us memories in perfection. There will be a perfect memory the joys and the uh, wonderful things of God's grace and mercy that he showed to us in our life, I believe that there will still be some measure of that in heaven. Will I be married to Kelly in heaven? No. Okay, we'll finally have a heavenly marriage, okay, with all perfection, but it won't be a marriage. I believe that there will be a uniqueness to my relationship with my wife that God will allow me to have, but it won't be in a married relationship with a ring on our fingers and a covenant and a contract, but I don't think that that is completely annulled and there will be no relationship or knowledge that we have of one another. I believe we will have a special relationship, but it won't be in a married status like what we are used to here on earth because we'll be in the very presence of our groom as the bride of Christ, and there won't be the need for the picture of marriage and the symbol of marriage and the example of marriage and the pleasure of marriage and the companionship of marriage that will all be fulfilled in Christ, in his very presence. But I don't believe that my relationship with my children will just disappear and be gone. I I, I would think that there would still be some in a perfect way, knowledge with some memory in a way that is perfect. And I think that God will bring a joy to heaven that will come out of our relationships. 
that we have had with one another. At the same time, will it not be a joy to be reunited with our loved ones who have gone before us? I mean, I'm looking forward to being with my dad, with with my mother-in-law. I'm looking forward to being with a child that we believe we lost when we first moved back to Indianapolis in the early, early stages of Kelly's pregnancy. I'm looking forward to, I mean, there's a child there that I do not know, that I will know in heaven. I mean, there's all kinds of ways in which that knowledge will be there. And I cannot completely fathom and understand all that. But there will be a perfect knowledge. And then finally, as we close tonight, there will be, actually, I have two more points. I'm sorry, I'd go just a little bit over tonight. There will be pure praise to the Lord. I wish we had time to read all of these verses, Revelation 5, Revelation 7, Revelation 21. We can at least go to Revelation 21 and go down to verses 22 through 24. Again, praise that is uninhibited by sin. Revelation 21, verses 22 through 24. And I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon, to shine in it, for the glory of God did lighten it. And the Lamb is the light thereof. And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it. And the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it. There is a pure praise to the Lord. And there's other passages that we don't have time to look at. Sin will no longer inhibit our praise. That, okay, and I'm not, I'm not trying to get on a rabbit trail. I know I'm going a little over on time. But I don't believe, I don't believe that our praise of our Heavenly Father in heaven will be with a rock concert that's patterned after ACDC and the Rolling Stones and all those other rock groups. Okay, if you understand what I'm saying. I just have a very hard time believing that our praise, our worship in heaven is going to be patterned after the rock concerts of the world, if you know what I'm saying. But whatever that worship concert, whatever that worship, that praise looks like, I believe that God has given us a part of that now in our church and in our church family, but imagine that at levels of the highest worship that we can give with all of the praise that comes out of the works, the good works that we have done after our salvation and the joys and the pleasures of heaven with no sin, with complete right fellowship with our Heavenly Father. Can you imagine that praise, that worship? I can't even fathom that. I cannot even imagine that. But it will be the glory, the most, I mean, I can't sing very well. I, I like to sing. I'm not a great singer. I, I like to sing songs, but we will be in a perfect choir, all of us. Whether we can't hold a tune in a bucket or whether we can sing majestic vocals, we're all going to be in that choir singing together to the Lord and bringing our praise before him.
in the joy and the pleasure and the experience of heaven will have some correspondence to how we have lived here on the earth for the Lord. Um, One last thing, pure joy. Pure joy. I've already touched on this, but two verses in the book of Psalms that speak to this. And then we'll close tonight. Psalm 16. Psalm 16. And we see this in verse number 11. Verse 10. Okay, we understand Psalm 16 has messianic references. Verse 10 of Psalm 16. For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither will thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. That is a messianic reference to the death, burial, and resurrection of, of Jesus Christ. Okay, but verse number 11 gives us a little bit of an insight as to what heaven will be like as far as joy. Thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand are pleasures forevermore. Joy and pleasure that we cannot even possibly imagine. The Joys and the pleasures of this earth will pale in comparison to the joys and the pleasures that we will enjoy without sin in the presence of our Savior. I I, I can't remember the, the hymn. I should have looked it up. But there are heights of joy that I cannot reach until we are at rest in Him. Those heights of joy will be experienced in the presence of God in heaven, uninhibited by sin. One last passage, Psalm 36 and verse number 8, and then we'll be done this evening. Psalm 36 and verse number 8. They shall be abundantly satisfied with the fatness of thy house. What is thy house referencing? The very presence of God. Okay, so the fatness, the satisfaction, the fatness there is talking about the abundance of the presence of God. They shall be abundantly satisfied with the fatness of thy house, and thou shalt make them drink of the river of thy pleasures. Yes, there is a mercy and a grace that we experience now from the Lord that brings joy and brings satisfaction this side of heaven. But once again, it pales in comparison to the satisfaction, the joy, and the pleasure that we will experience in heaven in the presence of our Heavenly Father, uninhibited by sin. What incredible promises we have regarding heaven. The personal presence of God, perfect state of sinlessness, perfect knowledge, pure praise, and pure joy. May that reinvigorate us to go out and to serve the Lord this week and to tell others about Jesus Christ that they might experience this as well with us in glory for all eternity. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, for these incredible promises that just overwhelm us. We don't deserve this, Lord. Yet you have prepared this out of your grace and your abundant mercy. None of which, Lord, that we have any right to, any, anything, Lord, that we have done to deserve this. But it is all of you. And we thank you, praise, and the glory for the grace and the mercy 
that, Lord, we look forward to that perfect place in the very presence of you without sin and perfect fellowship. And Lord, we pray that you will help us to even right now live in the light of all eternity, knowing, Lord, that what we do now and how we live now matters for all eternity, that we might be laying up treasures in heaven that we will then cast at your feet and worship and praise to you. And we pray that you will bless now as we go out from here to serve you this week. Lord, make us effective servants for you. Give us opportunities with the gospel, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Derek is going to come and lead us in one stanza of trust.